Delight in Language. Hi, I'm Rachel Thompson, and this is Lit Mag Love. In each episode of Lit Mag Love, I have real conversations with literary magazine editors about their writing lives and the editorial choices they make for their journals. My aim is to help you, lovely writer, discover new journals and understand what goes into the decision to accept or decline your submissions to Lit Mags. Lit Mag Love is produced by Room Magazine and by my course of the same name, Lit Mag Love. In this episode, I talk with Maya Marshall, a self-described demanding and productive writer and editor with Pank Magazine. Yes, the magazine founded by Roxane Gay. Among much glorious and affirming advice she shares with writers, she is clearly someone who delights in language and craft. She cheers this enchantment, the word that comes up often in our interview, when she sees it in her submission inbox. We talk about mentoring and modeling and warning about the risque words she does not want you to send into pink, at least not until you have a more mature revision practice. Maya Marshall is a Callaloo Fellow, a Cave Canham Fellow, a Fellow of the Watering Hole, an alumna of the Squaw Valley Community of Writers. Her writing has appeared most recently in Blackbird, Rhino, Jasper, and the Volta. She recently completed an MFA at the University of South Carolina, where she was the editor of the Yamasee Journal. So welcome to the Lit Meg Love podcast, Maya Marshall. Thank you for having me. How did you become a writer? Did you have family members who also wrote? Um, I certainly did. I was raised by an artist, arts administrator, kind of human who, uh, you know, spent a lot of time in her youth and, and, and mine protesting and doing social justice work. Um, so I, I grew up in rooms full of storytellers and visual artists and, and museums. And I um, was a participant in Writers in the Schools Houston, which is, a, you know, at least in teaching artists to classrooms and, and help students generate creative writing. Um, so I grew up in those kinds of group writing activities. And I was, you know, underfoot in museums and galleries and followed my mom for around for her one-woman shows. And, uh, you know, I remember listening to her read aloud the first book she ever wrote. I was certainly, you know, a little shy kid who would hide under my blankets and read with my flashlight well after my bedtime. And so I've been been writing since I can remember. In fact, my first reading, public reading, was at an anti-KKK rally in Austin, Texas in like 1993 or something, in the third grade. So yeah, I mean, I was, I was thrown headfirst into the arts and stayed there. Wow. And what, what beginnings with the a third grade reading at such a rally? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I come from Black people <laughs> who were raised in... Uh, my mom was raised in Brooklyn by a woman who was born in Augusta, Georgia, and you know did the Great Migration thing to New York in the 1940s. Um, my father's, you know, was raised by um, middle-class Black folks who worked, in, you know, as a librarian and as a teacher and as a city administrator, as high as well, as close to city administrator as he could be. And so we are, we're a family full of helpers and activists. And so I feel like it's my responsibility to show up. Uh, and I do that most, most often through education, through educating other people, through teaching, um, and through writing. What is your writing practice like? Well, um, I recently, like, a, like maybe two weeks ago, graduated from my MFA program at the University of South Carolina. And so for the last three years, it's been 
very rigorous, right? I have once a week deadlines. Um, I have, I'm in the practice now of writing sort of revision narratives where I look at a poem or essay that I've written and, and sort of talk out why it is I've organized it the way I have and what questions it raises for me and what discoveries I've made in the process of putting it together and how it might be strengthened by a shift in um, simile or line break or um, prosody. And so I'm more attentive in that way than I was when I, you know, say five years ago. At this point, I'm just trying to write regularly because now I don't have the constraints of the program. So, you know, I get up and I know that my best writing hours are like 10 to noon and three to five. And I'm sort of, sort of not very good at writing any other time of day. And I've released my chokehold on uh, first drafts such that I can put them down for three days and then come back and look at it with fresh eyes and sort of jump back in um, and reshape. And I've learned that there's not really writer's block, right? At this point, I can do a procedural, so I can just take text from someplace else and reshape it into a poem or into something that creates a question for me that I find myself wanting to answer. So, you know, I write maybe uh, three, three days out of a week. I now work from home because I work for Haymarket Books as a copy editor, so my job is to, to read nonfiction. And the brain gets tired after a while, so... I do. I just sort of give myself the treat um, and the practice of writing yeah, three days out of the week for a few hours and letting my drafts settle before I come back to them. And my goal, since I'm a, I'm a list writer and a time timeline maker, is to finish the revision of my thesis so that it is a book by the end of the calendar year and then to start sending it out. What's exciting is that I'm now free to write, write poems that have nothing to do with my book, and I'm excited about being delighted to write again. I love what you said about there's no such thing as writer's block and that you find ways to basically create some kind of active motivation for you to keep writing. Um, it's helpful to have, you know, generative prompts, right? So my friend Marty McConnell uh, has this, this series of prompts that she calls the fierce prompts. And so every month or so I sit down and just sort of answer the, the generative questions that she offers. Uh, my friend Daylana Damron John does something similar. So, you know, at this point I have piles and piles and binders of uh, prompts that I've created or that my friends have created or that were lesson plans that I've used for my students that I get to use for myself. So there's no excuse not to say something in a day, you know, like if I'm going to take those six hours a week, sometimes they're spent sort of staring at the blank page because I need to think about what I want to say. Um, but sometimes, you know, my job is just to start writing and the way to do that is to just respond to something that causes a, re a reaction, an emotional reaction in me. Um, so those prompts have been helpful and it's, I don't know, it's important to like maintain urgency. If you don't, then you can just stop writing, I guess. I would mm -hmm. not like that for my life. I want to ask you about hope because you're talking about coming from a hopeful family, hopeful people. And I'm going to also quote back to you something that you wrote about your goal in your writing, which was, you said was to foreground the essential roles that women and our work play in our economy and in defining the mythology of American beauty and how your work interrogates the impact of received delicates like clothing and labor and intellectual work on the female body, on the perception of beauty, on intimate, often domestic relationships, and on the degrees of imagined and perceived Americanness. And so the hope part is, I'm wondering what gives you hope as you write these narratives today? Um, I've spent the last few years reading about and interviewing my my mother and my grandmother and, and you know my matrilineal line um, and these women have survived a great deal of uh, 
trouble um, of, of abuse and of like poverty and uh, and undermining in their positions as bosses when they have been bosses and they have you know never given up the the choice to dress to dress well to feel good to laugh <laughs> to train their daughters to be demanding uh, and also productive and also strong so that such that like strength is um, part of the definition of beauty. I, you know, always had my own sort of tomboyish style, and that was um, a privilege, right? A gift from my from my mom to say, like, express yourself as you see fit, and that you are beautiful in the body that you are in because it is strong, because it is capable, uh, and because we've chosen to adorn you, right? So that was important to me. One of my earliest projects was. Uh, this, this chapbook, Secondhand Lingerie, in which I wrote about the lingerie section of a, um, of a thrift shop, right? Because what a fascinating thing. And it shouldn't be a surprising thing that poor women also have the right to be sexy, right? That, like, maybe we can't afford Jordel $200 pieces, but if we, you know, are the people who take care of the household and cook the chicken for dinner, then at the end of that, we can come to our partners and be soft and be wearing something that makes us feel full and um, alive and alluring, even if that comes from some other woman's home, right? It makes me think about who wore it first and what circumstance led her to, to let, say, her negligee go. There's so much shared, so much physically shared between lovers, between sisters, between friends who do clothing swaps, for example. I, I just, I don't know, I'm enamored of the idea uh, that we can inherit intimacy, that we teach sexiness uh, to one another. So that was an idea that stuck with me for a few years. Um, I've moved from it now in my writing, but I think that um, Clothing and presentation and respectability have a great deal to do with the kinds of opportunities we do or do not receive in, in workplaces of all kinds. I'm not going to turn to national politics at the moment because I don't, I don't feel particularly hopeful in the, in the moment. Do you have any advice that you received? I know, I know I asked you this before and you said when you were an emerging writer and you still consider yourself an emerging writer, but what, what is, the, I guess, the best writing advice that you have received? Uh, keep writing, read a lot, right? I mean, and that's, it's such common advice, but people don't read as much as I think we ought to, like, because you don't know what you're going to need, right? Like, I've learned all sorts of strange things about moths, you know? There's this cobra moth who, like, just shakes its wings so it looks like the head of a cobra so it scares off predators like that's fascinating and that's the kind of thing that shows up uh in an essay as a as a metaphor you know like what a what a cool tidbit also if you read writers that you don't like and you can identify what it is they're doing with their text that that you don't want to do or the function of this this strategy then you can put that in your toolbox and use it later but if you don't read you don't know and also Writing is hard and it takes a long time until so you practice. You just keep doing it. This is not about like that one moment of like sort of the Athenian poem erupting from Zeus's head. Like that's rare. It's a gift when it happens, but most of the time writing is work. So you have to set aside time and sit down and do it. And you know, reading is a way to be inspired to do that because often you get to look at writers that you love and say, wow, how did you put that together? Like, 
like if I can figure out how you did it, then I can use this strategy too. Like maybe I need to start verbing nouns more often. That's pretty cool. Or like, can I listen to, you know, Nina Simone and figure out what about her accent is alluring to me? How can I pull that voice into my text? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the advice. Read a lot, write a lot. Um, Nikki, Nikki Finney has been really helpful in saying, like, be specific. So she taught me to write revision narratives and to go down the, the sort of checklist, right? Like, have I paid attention to the sequence here? Like, what it, why is it this line length? How is imagery working? Am I using associative language? If I mentioned it in the beginning of the poem or the essay or the story, has it come back by the end? And if not, why not? There's a language of talking about writing that I think writers should learn. You mentioned Nikki Finney, um, and I'm wondering about other mentors. Like, how, how do you see mentoring happening within your writing communities? Yeah, I, I was just talking to some other writers at Split This Rock last month, which feels like years ago. And we talked about sort of stewardship, right? Like, as an editor or as editors, it's our job to seek out people who are participating in the conversation who are not getting signal boosted, right? So... I look for and listen for people of color and queer folks and people who are like obviously writing because they pay attention to or en and are enchanted with language, people who are invested in some sort of level of experiment at the level of craft. And I try to make, make sure that other people are reading them. Like that's a way to be a steward in, in the, the literary world. Another way is through modeling. So I mentioned Nikki because, I, you know, because I've had this this honor to study under her for the last three years and closely for the last year. And I've watched her in the classroom and one-on-one -on -one and like at public events. And that woman is just always herself. She's always being herself. She's also demanding and she is attentive to the sensitivities of each of her individual students. And like, that's a kind of practice I want to embody. I want to be able to be responsible for and accountable to being myself. Um, and to be sort of empathetic and attentive to people that I'm teaching formally or, or informally. So modeling is a way to do that. You know, sometimes people send me inquiries or pitches about what they want to do for Pink. You know, if it's not something I can publish, I say why. Um, and I ask and I thank them for reaching out. And then um, I keep the conversation open because being accessible and um, honest and patient and demanding makes for better writing and better writers. And at the level of peers, right, like there are a few people I can always trust to give me honest, attentive, clear feedback. And, you know, that's a kind of mentorship. But, you know, writing is um, always a solitary activity. It's always kind of lonely. Uh, so when I talked to Rita Dove, she did a master class at uh, University of South Carolina. And I asked her a question that was similar to this. She said, really, I've, I've reverted or like rediscovered the mentorship that's in the books, right? Like, go read your writers. They'll show you how they came to be, how they persisted, how they, how their craft developed over the course of their career. And so those are the ways I think about mentorship right now. We're going to take a short sponsor break. And when we return, we'll hear more about what Maya Marshall learned about even writing cover letters, curating her digital image, as she puts it, when we're back. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, literature, art, and feminism since 1975. Check out the new series Turtle Island Responds. 
Turtle Island Responds is a news-related online poetry series inspired by Rattle Magazine's Poets Respond and the many conversations editor Yonina Curtin has had with others who have found themselves on the fringes. You can find the series on roommagazine.com. Lit Mag Love is also co-presented by my course of the same name. Lit Mag Love is an online course to help you publish in journals, get smart, fearless, and published with lots of help from me. It's a course full of strategy and support and comes with a warm community of writers. Course registration opens only a couple times per year. To find out more, go to litmaglove.com. What's been the most rewarding part of editing and, and how has the editing informed your writing? There are a whole lot of writers, right? Um, that we get to publish. We've got the blog, we have the little book and big book series, we have the two online issues, we have the print issue, we do live readings a couple times a year, and so I've had access to just writing from all over the world, from people of, of vastly different ages and cultural backgrounds and interests. That's been a lot of fun. I read a lot <laughs> as an editor, which means I see a lot of the same sort of writerly tics um, I see things I used to do, and you know we talked about reading published stuff earlier. But reading unpublished new work is as important, right? Because it gives me a sense of like what the current and important conversations are, and of like how to write a cover letter or not. And yeah, I mean I see a lot of the same type of first person recounting of an experience type poems, which are you know they have their place, but it is thrilling to see the ways in which people change and innovate forms for the sake of uh, inviting in a new voice or for layering meaning. So that's been informative and has changed the way I think about curating my, right, my digital image, my digital self. I'd say I'm better in person. But yeah, I've, I've learned how to write uh, a cover letter. I've learned to practice persona. I've learned to manipulate form so that I'm opening a new possibility for the meaning of the content. That might sound a little vague. I'm picking up what you're saying. You're talking about even approaching the communication about the writing as a craft and how we project ourselves and represent ourselves as writers. For sure. And, you know, there's a kind of poem that gets circulated a lot that's not really all, that's like less interesting to me now where it's like there's supposed to be an epiphanic moment at the end of a small recounting of a memory. Uh, and that doesn't always work, right? Like that's a, that's, that's a sort of um, maybe too direct method for examining a feeling that I would like to see inverted more often than, than it is. And so I've tried not to write that sort of straight down the left column, here's a recounting kind of poem. Though I do love a good portrait. So yes, one, it's I've learned how to present myself more intentionally as I talk about writing. And two, I have a sense of the kind of poem that I'm more interested in. Yeah, so it's informed your taste and what ultimately gets published even in Pank, but also your own, your own writing and presentation. For sure. I would agree that at Room we see a lot of those poems as well. And one of my previous interviews was actually with Room's contest coordinator. In this case, she was talking about creative nonfiction, but I think it applies to where you where she said your feelings are not enough. There has to be more to the piece than the emotional journey you took. Right. And then just, and, all, and also more to it than just saying, this is the emotional journey I took. I'm like, please just put me in the place and moment. Like the specific, it's the specific that gets us to the universal, right? It's the sensory that gets us to the emotive release. That's the kind of thing I'm looking for. 
I want to see that the text has been written thoroughly, by which I mean it's like clear that the author is enchanted by language and that they are not putting themselves directly in, in, in the frame, right? Like I'm still practicing pulling myself out of the way of the lens of whatever I'm, whatever story I'm trying to convey. And I'm asking that other writers do the same thing. Got to get out of your own way sometimes. What is and sometimes you can't see it, right? It's important yeah. to have like a good first reader, someone who's going to be honest with you for that feedback and also not to send out your first draft. Maybe it takes 30 drafts to get to reveal the, the, the sort of sculpture underneath the rock, you know. The founding editor of Pank, Roxane Gay, is famous. That's just a fact, I guess, and admired by so many people, myself included. And I'm wondering how her fame, and because really I think when you talk to lit mag editors even too, it's sort of like this is the lit mag editor who, who made good, right? So how has fame impacted your work at the journal? Well, I mean, she's famous because she's brilliant, right? Uh, and so I feel like responsible for making, making sure that I maintain the sort of initiating mission. And for the, the magazine, it, it means that people, you know, are always looking for us, looking out to, to us. And we get a great deal of submissions as a result. And so we can grow. And that's, that's great. We can grow sort of on a national scale, but also internationally. And I'm, I'm excited about that springboard. I also want... I would want for Roxanne to read the magazine now and be like, yeah, this is still dope. Like we're still, you're still publishing innovative work. You're still um, inviting a whole array of voices. You're still being overtly political. And as much as the personal is political, we're also overtly against uh, fascists like the president. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, like that's a sustaining force for us, her fame, but you know, like I'm not famous, so I feel a great deal of mental freedom to do and, and write and say. I wonder if I even should dare to try to tie this into what you're saying about fascism and, and the and the po- politics right now in the U.S. and the world, really. But what do you see as the current role of literature, I guess, given that, given our times? Uh, we are responsible, writers are responsible for telling the truth. Um, and for reflecting humanity back to humans so that we can have appropriate human feelings in response, like shame or pride or whatever we need to be empathetic about. Um, literature is a historical archive. Uh, it's a sort of repository of warnings and directions for how to live and imperatives for doing what is right. That's the role of literature. The writers, the poets have always been the vanguard we see and say first, and we need to keep doing exactly that. And related to that, too, is why, why is it important to be risky with writing at Pank? Because I know that's part of the mission at Pank. Um, because this is not a moment in our nation's history to be uh, submissive or to sort of go along to get along. Because wrong things are happening people, brown people are being murdered, women are being assaulted, children are being stolen and trafficked. Like, this is not the time to talk about, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say it's not a good time for love letters. For sure it is. It always is. But we should also be mixing in with moments of um, joy and contentment and status quo invectives for shifts and change and, and accountability because we have to balance just living our lives, which is important and hard to do for a whole bunch of bodies in the world with uh, changing how the world in which we live functions. 
you've been with Pank for a year, and in that year, I think you've published a lot of great writers. What What's the most important piece, or if you don't have to name one, but just maybe talk about the important pieces that you've published and, and what that's meant for you in the year? Okay, so we published Gina Rose Nethercott, which I was really excited about. She writes regional, out in the country, uh, working class, minded and hearted poems. And I think that's important. We're talking about an America that has mostly a working class that's raced, but it's important to me to have, you know, a well-written portrait, but one from a working class America. I'll say that. We've also published Mars Huerenjen Steadwell, whose book, All Blue So Late, it's pretty cool. It's, um, it's, 14, it's a crown of sonnets about a 14-year-old girl coming into her womanhood. And the whole book is looking at the struggles and sort of suicidal tendencies and the anger and the, the flushness that comes with becoming like a fully fledged adult and sexual being as a black woman. And so the poems we have from that, I think it's called A Woman Pouring Handfuls of Ash. I feel like it's an important piece because it's a womanist piece because it speaks to sort of every woman narrative that I, I want to see more often. And we are publishing a big book by a man named uh, Scott Chalupa, who is from Texas. He's written this really stunning first collection that is essentially a set of love letters and like invectives to reclaim the bodies of all of these scores of men who died of AIDS in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And he does these like cool and um, formal choices. So he's written like obituaries, and he's written a series of ekphrastics based on Caravaggio's paintings, and it's really, it's, it's a stunning and important book. Important because, you know, it's reclaiming the bodies of these men in this moment in history where, like, there's a full-on assault on queer people in the United States. So to have a working-class, womanist, feminist, queer friendly set of voices and in, in our big books and little books and in the online issues and in the print issues feels important to me. And how did how do these pieces come to be published? Like you're you're taking unsolicited submissions and you mentioned the fame leads to a lot of those. What is your current acceptance rate of slush in the magazine? Um, I'd say our magazines are made up about ninety percent slush. Uh, and then and when we took well, when John Gosley took it over in 2015, uh, I think he and Chris Campioni solicited work because they wanted to be able to sort of make a splash and say, hey, Pink is still here and we're still out here publishing risky, fun, surprising work. Um, and since then, you know, we've, because we know a whole lot of writers, we still have the opportunity to solicit, but we have a large number of readers. And so uh, we read the slush, you know, I read the slush. Um, and because of the fame we get, really strong slush right it's not a not a bottom tier journal so we don't really get a lot of bottom tier writers which is exciting we get good stuff i love how you say that about the tiers because often writers are thinking about oh that you know this is a higher tier journal and should i submit there but the fact that you're thinking of your writers too is these are higher tier writers that's awesome i mean what the magazine doesn't exist without the writers right it's not it's not about the editors and i think that kind of respect for the writers is just so important. And I think when people can feel that, that's great. 
we talked a bit about some of the qualities of writing that maybe writers should be bringing back into the garage and, and revising and pushing further. But I'm wondering if you have other specifics you want to get into about what kind of writing you've seen too much of and what you don't want to see again. I read The Slush, right? And I've read The Slush for, uh, I think, four different journals at this point um, over the last seven or eight years. You know, I know that new writers feel this need to be raw or progressive or fresh. They're wanting to to take risks. Um, And so what happens often is they write about sex in this, like, no soft light, no partition kind of way and it feels very diaristic and it also feels like a, like too much information and I recognize the impulse to be vulnerable and like unflinching but I really do find myself wanting to tell folks to like put their pants back on there are degrees of intimacy that allow for surprise and subtlety and for maintaining attention and the writing that allows for like tautness to exist for the reader and that's that's hard it's hard to maintain that tension so I think folks should hang on to those texts until they've developed sort of a mature revision practice and receive feedback from, from people who don't know them so that it's not the act that's the focus of the text, but the epiphany or the, the revelation. And that takes fine tuning. Sex is not inherently risky. The writing has to do something more with, with the content to dramatize it, to make it important to read. So yeah, I'm, I've, I feel like I've been in a lot of people's bedrooms without like appropriate invitation or preparation. Yeah, and it's such a hard line, I think, sometimes for writers because we are telling them as editors, go deeper, surprise us, be vulnerable, and then they're going, but in the wrong way, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you have a mole, okay, well that's, what about it though, (laughs) you know? Do you see those poems or or those essays? For sure, yeah. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of them, like, no. (laughs) Please stop it. On the positive side then what kind of writing are you eager to see what do you what do you want people to send you i want to see people like playing with form right fatima Oscar and her new book uh what's it called if they should come for us has a crossword poem and that's cool um dustin pearson whose first book just came out it's called uh, millennial roost has written a full book of epistolary poems to an abuser using the second person so that the audience is also implicated and sort of can't look away. And it is, it's a stunning and deeply unsettling first book. It's also like sardonically funny and like it has his voice. Voice is, uh, is so important. Um, I want people to use their actual voices instead of like their, their poet voice. Yeah, use the language that exists in your life. So that's exciting to see. Um, Kenyatta Rogers, we just published a poem of his, two poems of his in Pink 13, as uh, this like lyric associative writer, and he just blends like bizarre and intensely vivid imagistic combinations, and it's it's dope. It's a lot of fun to read. So those are the kinds of things I'm hoping to see more of, honestly. Again, I want a thoroughly written text. I want attention to the sentence. I want people to like know the rules of grammar, even if they're going to break them. Grammar does matter. It teaches me how to read your poem. So yeah, that's that's important. Um, but yeah, those are those are the things I'm wanting to see more of. I think it bears worth it bears repeating, and you've said it a few times that you really want people who are enchanted with language and that level of attention to the writing. So that's, that's just lovely. And, and it doesn't always have to be some sort of 
you know, elevated text, right? Like Jericho Brown has poems written in the dialect of like the deep Louisiana South and like black dialects. So attentiveness and skilled control of your craft is important to me. It doesn't mean you have to be writing like some sort of pantoum or in an elevated register from an era that we don't belong in anymore. There are lots of different Englishes. So use yours to the best of your ability. That's, that's what I'm wanting to see. I know you recently also started a journal called Underbelly, and I'm wondering how that work, how the work there differs from your work at Pank. Well, first of all, Underbelly is, for the first year, all solicited work, right? Uh, so we're reaching out and to writers who we've met and admire and care for and saying, like, please, please show us the, like, the hidden parts of your process. And the mission of Underbelly is different from the mission of Pank, right? It's a heuristic. It's here specifically to be a teaching tool. Like, yes, we are signal-boosting exceptional writing, but more than that, we're showing how we get from the beginning stages of just the block of clay to the, the final stage of the sculpture. And I think that's important. It's important for people to see that, like, writing is hard, <laughs> and it takes a long time, and that there are steps to these processes, and those processes are different for every writer. And so if you're, like, a writer nerd, then you would love this because... There's a whole bunch of mar marginalia, right? You get to see, like, Nicole Seeley's handwriting and her color coding system. Or you can look at, um, like, Destiny Birdsong's track changes. And each of these writers writes a little blurb about, about how they got from the beginning stage to the end stage of a poem or, or whatever. And it's just cool to hear them using the language of writers talking about writing. But also, it's important, I think, and helpful to see how they put these made objects together. So Pink has developed to provide this platform for pe people of color and women and sort of surprising experimental writing and artwork from across the genres. And it's like, it's still and now interested in hybridity and multiplicity um, with regard to both identity and to form. And Underbelly has space for all those things, but its intention is not only to share exceptional work from a wide array of voices and ages and genders, and sexualities, et cetera, but also, and I think more importantly, um, it's there to, to think through and demonstrate how these pieces of artwork get put together. Like it offers a, a space in which to look for how the gestalt comes to be. It doesn't, doesn't want to remove mystery, but it does suggest through example and examples how craft and attention to detail and enchantment with language, as I've said so many times, creates mystery. So that's fun. I get to learn from it um, because someone walks me through the decisions that they made. Like I can look at this flesh and I can read the things that we write that we published in Pink and, and sort of pick and pick out what stands out to me about the the nonfiction piece or the fiction or the poetry. But to have a writer tell you is more informative and it's like fun. It gets like being in a in the backstage, you know. It's exciting. Thank you so much for sharing all this time with me and, and talking about Pank and Underbelly and for the demanding and, and obviously productiveness that you're putting out in the world too. That's great. Thanks again for having me. I feel honored and surprised to have been picked out of the large pool of uh, editors out in the world. The honor is all mine. I want to thank my guest, Maya Marshall, for being with us today. And you can find out more about her at mayamarshallpoetry.com. During our conversation, Maya Marshall mentioned that she doesn't really believe in writer's block and in fact has several prompts that she uses to break through that resistance that all writers get at moments when they sit down and face the blank page. And I asked if she would provide some of those prompts 
for our listeners, and she kindly agreed to do so. So if you want to get some of Maya Marshall's writing prompts, they are available on litmaglovepodcast.com. You just have to search for the Maya Marshall episode, and you'll be able to download them there. I want to talk about what we learned from the interview today. And I think some of the key takeaways for me are that if you are enchanted by language, Maya Marshall is your dream editor. And another thing that she said that I think was poignant is that this is not a moment in our history to go along to get along and to speak out. And her saying that made me think of the Right Rhymes with Fight episode with Euphemia Fantetti. You can check that out at lemaglovepodcast.com for those of us who are outspoken in our words on the page more than in other places. And the other things that we learned were that Pank publishes 90% slush, and that is a lot for a lit mag of that profile. So I would encourage you to send your work, but also recognize that on the flip side of it, they do get a lot of work. Maya Marshall said she specifically listens for people of color and queer folks and people who are obviously writing because they pay attention to and are invested in some sort of level of experiment at the craft level. And she has spent a lot of time being thoughtful about literary stewardship. So if you get a chance to learn from this editor through submissions to the journals that she edits or workshops, I really suggest you check it out. Thanks for listening to Lit Mag Love. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, literature, art, and feminism since 1975, and the Lit Mag Love course, an online course to get smart, fearless, and published with lots of help from me. Sound editing for the episode is done by Micah Lemiski. The transcript for this episode was done by me, and I'm your host, Rachel Thompson. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at litmaglovepodcast.com or on Twitter and Instagram at litmaglove.